Hello, everyone. This is Anthony Fasano, and this is just a short note that we added to this episode after it was originally recorded. We had such an amazing response to this episode, John Lowe's interview you're about to hear on his book, A Guide to Managing Engineering and Architectural Design Services Contracts, that we decided to team up with him and publish the audiobook of his book. So if you like what you heard in this episode, you can go to contractsbook.com. That's contractsbook.com, and you can actually purchase his audiobook and listen to the whole thing in two hours and learn a whole bunch of information about contracts that's really going to help you as a civil engineer. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking with John Lowe about a book he wrote called A Guide to Managing Engineering and Architectural Design Services Contracts, What Every Project Manager Needs to Know. And I got to tell you, this is a good episode for you civil engineers out there, and I don't care if you're an executive or an intern. What I've learned from being a civil engineer is that the more you can learn about contracts, the better you're going to be as an engineer, the better to yourself, the better for your company, the better for your clients. And John just gave an awesome interview in this one. There's 50 topics on contracts in his book, but we did like a Letterman countdown and we went through the top 10 and I'm excited. I just spoke to him. We just did the interview and I'm really excited to share this one with you. And I do want to say one other thing about the Civil Engineering Podcast. The podcast has exploded, and we thank you for your support. The number of downloads has been increasing dramatically. But one thing that I learned about the podcast is it's not a podcast just for younger civil engineers. It's a podcast for all civil engineers. I've gotten so much great feedback from managers, even executives, about how much they're loving the podcast. And that makes me feel good. We want this to be a show that can help you at every aspect and every level and every experience level as a civil engineer. So before I introduce you formally to my guest, John Lowe, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. If you're thinking about taking the civil FE or PE exam, I recommend that you check out PPI, the leader in civil engineering exam prep. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code civil at ppitopass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass. .com and use promo code CIVIL for a 20% discount. Now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's civil engineering conversation so you get to know a little bit more about him before we dive into our conversation. John Lowe is a 1961 civil engineering graduate from the University of Florida. Following three years of military service as an Army pilot, he enjoyed 46 years as a consulting engineer involved in both private and public projects as project manager, principal in charge, or office manager. He has been registered and practiced in Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, California, and Oregon. His last employment assignment was a design coordinator with Oregon Bridge Delivery Partners. In 2010, he retired from full-time employment and formed Low Consulting, LLC, and began giving back to the profession by sharing what he had learned about contracting for professional services and managing professional liability issues. This process began by appearing as a guest speaker on these subjects to senior engineering students at Portland State University, University of Portland, and Oregon State University. 
He's also addressed these subjects at professional society meetings, public agency training sessions, and webinars. To facilitate getting this information to a wider audience, he wrote and self-published the book entitled A Guide to Managing Engineering and Architectural Design Service Contracts, What Every Project Manager Needs to Know. Let's jump into the interview with John in today's Civil Engineering Conversation. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our Civil Engineering Conversation. And today's guest is John Lowe. John is the author of A Guide to Managing Engineering and Architectural Design Services Contracts, What Every Project Manager Needs to Know. John, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks, Anthony. So John's book covers many topics associated with contracts for design professionals. We're going to focus on the top 10 in today's episode. But before we get into that, I'd like to ask John, just to John, talk a little bit about the book, uh, the audience that it's for, and, and the contents of the book. Okay. The target audience for this book is primarily recent engineering or architectural graduates that aspire to become project managers. While they're on their way to becoming a project manager, they would like to use that time to better be prepared so that they won't have to be learning so much on the first day as a project manager. Having said that, about 15% of what's in the book was learned during the last five years of my career. So the book is also beneficial for seasoned project managers as well. A central theme in the book is expectation management. It should be the objective of almost all consultant-client relationships is that they would come to the end of the project and the consultant and the client would look at each other and say, yep, that's exactly what I expected. So almost everything that's in the book is intended to enhance the probability of that happening. That's an interesting take. And John, you said something that was interesting there, was that you learned most of the stuff in the book in the last five years of your career. Was that right? No, it's only about 15% of the book in the last five years. The 85% is what I learned over the 46 years that I practiced engineering. Okay, so the book has over 50 separate topics that are presented, more or less in the order in which projects normally follow from selection through record drawings. Included within the text are 12 templates the use of which will improve the efficiency of implementing the concepts presented in the topics. They include things like a change of scope form, a meeting planning form, site visit, photo log, and shop drawing review log. These templates are also available for purchase in their native format for customization at my website. Okay, great. And we'll, at the end of the show here, we'll get John's information out to you so everyone can take a look at it. And also along those lines, we are going to walk through these top 10, I guess you could say top 10 topics in the book around contracts. However, you're going to hear us go through this list and count them down to number one, but they're also going to be listed on the show notes for this episode on our website, which will be located at civilengineeringpodcast.com. This is episode number 40. So we'll have this list and we'll have links to John's website and the book and everything there. So with that, John, you ready to jump in here? Yes, sir. All right. So number 10 is accounts receivable. Talk about that, John. Well, accounts receivable is something that everybody's really interested in, especially your chief financial officer, because they want to be sure you get paid. And sometimes clients start to get a little behind, and they refer to as slow-pay clients. And this is sometimes a warning signal that something else is also happening. It may be that the client is running out of money, or perhaps they have become unhappy with some of the service that the client and the consultant is providing. Either way, it's important that that issue be run to ground and be fixed. Before you go on there, I just want to uh, make a point. 
John brings up a really good point in that we had slow payers at the engineering company that I worked with and our executives were basically, they had some guidelines. Like if someone was a slow payer for X amount of periods in a row, it would kind of red flag would come up. And I think that that's really important because like John said, there, there's a, probably a pattern established for a reason. They might be running out of money. They might be behind. They might be losing their own projects. So definitely, if your account's receivable with the same client seems to be a regular pattern of late payments, don't just start to get used to it. You may have to address it. So I, I just wanted to add that in there. All right. So number nine, John, is purchase orders. Purchase orders are frequently offered to a consulting engineer as the basis of their contract. Well, the fine print on the back of a purchase order almost always includes guarantees and warranties. Now, most professional liability insurance policies have a long list of exclusions, one of which is almost always if a consultant agrees to Azure Insure, warranty, guarantee, or certify anything, then that's not included under their coverage. So you want to strike out those portions of the purchase order fine print that could be damaging to your professional liability insurance. Point number eight, John, is to create a culture of awareness to professional liability issues. What do you mean by that? Basically, I found that most engineers and architects really aren't particularly interested in thinking about professional liability issues while they're doing the design. That is until there's a claim. And then they're very interested and they want to know a lot about it. And they say, gee, I wish I'd have thought about that while I was doing the design. So the workaround for that issue that I recommend to my clients is that very similar to having a safety topic at the beginning of your weekly staff meeting, you would also have a professional liability loss topic in which you could take one of the topics from my book and discuss it briefly. And what this does has a double benefit in, in that it keeps these issues in the top of the minds of the designers while they're doing the design. And by the end of a year, everybody that attends the staff meetings will have received training, which otherwise it's hard to get them to take the time to read the book. Yeah, I would agree with this point. I remember one of the best managers that I had as a civil engineer was a manager who was very aware of liability issues during the design process. When we were looking at a parking lot, we were looking at construction of steps, ramps, etc. He was always asking questions about the liability, about the details, about whatever it might have been, the ADA standards. And so I think it's a good point because you can get locked in. I mean, there's a lot of things going on in a design, but you can get locked into some of the engineering details or calculations or studies and then close your eyes to some of the potential liability issues. So definitely keep that in mind. And I think what John said is dead on. The only way to start to think about these issues is to learn about them, read about them regularly, implement any kind of training or work you can do in your office with your team. It's got to become like habitual thinking or else you're not really going to implement it or be aware of it. So I think that's really important. All right, number seven, contractor requested changes from contract document requirements. John, tell us about this one. Frequently, a contractor will see a way that he can do something less expensively for him may or may not be as good, may or may not be beneficial to the owner. And so I basically found that almost always it primarily benefits the contractors. You want to be very careful about agreeing to these kind of things. And it's particularly necessary to involve the particular discipline 
on which the uh, change is going to be affected. And I would never allow a contractor to deviate from the contract requirements without the specific okay from the owner. That's something that I think happens all the time. And really, one of the challenges that I see with civil engineers, and this is for whether you're a younger civil engineer or experienced civil engineer, is lack of experience dealing with contractors. And for those of you out there that are experienced, I think you should really focus on having your younger engineers and design professionals somehow get exposure to contractors, whether it's sending them in the field to learn, whether it's bringing them to meetings with you, because it can be very intimidating dealing with some of these requests. And I'm sure, John, you could talk about that. But I mean, I, th- I know for myself, being a young engineer standing on a site, got a couple of contractors telling you that they, gotta, they need a request, they got to keep the project moving it becomes stressful. So you got to just go to meetings and learn and you're going to have to talk to people and learn because it's not something you're going to pick up in school. But like John said, it's very critical on the project and it can cause some major changes if it's not addressed properly. All right. Number six, stop work authority. What's that, John? Stopping work on a project almost always initiates a host of complex, expensive, and time-consuming activities that frequently have profound professional liability, and legal consequences. Anytime it's necessary to stop a project, uh, typically you have to call in the bonding company and everything gets very messy. And so my general policy is to try to have the authority for stopping work on a contract to remain with the owner. Uh, Sometimes the owner doesn't want that authority. He wants the engineer to have it. However, if you do accept that responsibility, then you never want to stop a project without getting agreement from the owner to stop that project and then take the necessary actions to remediate the problem. Great point. So be aware of who has the ability to stop your projects when you're reviewing your contracts. We're about halfway through here, and I just want to say something at this halfway point. In Joe Schrodel, who is the executive director for the Society of American Military Engineers, who we had on our episode 100 of the Engineering Career Coach podcast, we spent some time with him at one of their events and he, he was talking in front of a bunch of engineers and he said, you know, one of the most valuable things you can do as an engineering professional is to learn about contracts because understanding contracts can be extremely valuable for you, especially in the civil engineering world. As we're walking through these with John, these points, I'm thinking about how some of these things I wasn't aware of when I was a designer and looking back, I wish I was aware of it. And I hope that maybe you're really picking these points apart. And again, we're going to link to resources. We can get the book. You can see this summary that we did. But some of these are points that I think knowing these things can change your perspective and really improve the success, whether it's you, your team, your staff, really important stuff. All right, let's keep moving along here. Point number five, shop drawing review, John. This, of course, is a very critical element in the construction process. And an inadequate shop drawing review can have consequences ranging from increased cost to loss of life. It's really important that the manager select the person to review the shop drawing middles based solely on the requirements for reviewing that particular shop drawing. All too often, the review of shop drawings is relegated to the person who happens to be available at that time or with excessive consideration to the compensation rate of the person doing the review. And that can lead to disaster because if you have someone that's 
not sufficiently qualified, they'll miss some things. Another trick that I learned about shop drawing review is that whenever the contractor submits a shop drawing for review, I require that it be numbered so that in the event that I receive shop drawing number six and I haven't received shop drawing number five, then I know that there's one out there floating around that I haven't seen yet. If you don't number them, then the contractor will just send you their uh, shop drawings for review in a random order, and some of them will get dropped in the process. So there are a lot of things that are mentioned in my book are just little tricks that I've learned along the way. Now, John, would you recommend having a good shop drawing log? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do remember keeping that. And I and John brought up a really interesting point that I never thought about, but he's right that most times civil engineering companies or design companies will just give the youngest engineer or not all the time, but a lot of times the shop drawing review job, when as this is, can be such a critical task that that person might not have that experience because if something goes wrong on a shop drawing, I mean, if they buy the wrong concrete piece, that could be thousands of dollars. But then even like John said, if something gets constructed improperly, there could be a loss of life. So think about who's being assigned this work and what the consequences are if this is not done properly. All right, point number four, scope of work. It's only with a clear scope of work that expectations of all the parties can be expected and understood and believed. So my basic rule of scope of civil work is that more detail is better. And one of the things that I've recommended for defining what the scope of work is, besides giving the long list of of items that are included, is to provide a list of the drawings that are anticipated and also a list of the contract specification sections that I would plan to use. This gives the client a real clear understanding of what he's going to be seeing when the first submittals start coming in. Another thing that's important about the scope of work is that everyone involved in the project needs to have access to or even maybe have a copy of the detailed scope of work so that they don't miss something that was included or equally as bad, start adding scope to the work that was specifically excluded during the negotiations. Great points. And I would agree with John that the more detail, the better on the scope of work, because the last thing you want to do is produce something. And the client says, well, I didn't know you were going to put these items in here, or I didn't know that this was going on this part of the site, or I didn't know that you were responsible for this or weren't. And also, I think what this one is, is checking in with the clients too along the way is important. You might have agreed to a scope of work, but review that scope of work with them and the progress to date certain periods of time. Because I know in some cases in design work is that you can get off on a little bit of a tangent and the next thing you know, you're off your scope. And if you would have just checked in with the owner or the client, you may have been able to flush that out and save yourself 20, 30 hours of design work that now your company probably has to pay for because they're not necessarily going to because you didn't, you went off of the scope of work. So definitely be aware of that. Number three, expectation management. There's a whole section in the book about expectation management, whose responsibility it is. It almost always falls to the consultant to manage the client's expectations. The client knows what he wants, and hopefully he's gotten that into the scope of work, but sometimes it isn't always clear. And there's often clarifications that come along during the process of doing the design, in which case it becomes incumbent upon the 
the consultant to feed back to the client what the consultant thinks the client has asked him to do or how to refine the scope of work. Expectation management is something that I cheerfully accepted as a responsibility and has held me in good stead in project management throughout my career. I would say that expectation management is probably one of the most underrated terms or concepts out there in civil engineering because I think it's critically important, like John said, at the end of the project, basically, your client's expectations have to be met. And if you meet their expectations, you're going to be considered a good consultant. I mean, you know, obviously, you want to come within budget or close to that in time and schedule and everything else, but that would be part of the expectations. So if you have the ability to understand what someone's expectations are and manage them as a manager, as a designer, whatever part of your role is, then you will also be in good stead for your career on these projects because you're giving people what they expect. It's really the bottom line. I mean, that's what the whole project is about, essentially. All right, number two, constructability review. I had a lot of trouble, Anthony, deciding whether this should be number two or number one because it, it is so important. The point here is that there will always be a constructability review somewhere along the line in the process. The best time to have a constructability review is during the design, preliminary design phase, and always before advertising for bids. Now, the person that's qualified to do a constructability, and the only person that's qualified, is someone that has actually built what you are designing. If you don't have that capability within your own company, it's money well spent to retain someone that works for a construction management organization to do a constructability review at the preliminary phase. Contractors rather enjoy finding things in engineers' designs that can't be constructed that way and letting them know about it. So, But you've got to have it done early or else it's going to cost you more. If you don't have it done during the early in the design, if you have to make changes later in the design, that's expensive. Or worse still, if you put something out on the street for bidding that is not constructible, then there'll be all kinds of RFIs and requests for information, and it'll slow down the bidding process. And of course, if you don't catch it before the construction actually begins, then each one of these unconstructable items will turn into change orders, which are expensive and time-consuming. So get your constructability review done during the preliminary design phase and avoid all these potential headaches later on. I don't mean to rant here, but I have to say that one of the biggest pitfalls of civil engineers, and it's upsetting sometimes, is that sometimes they forget that what they're designing actually has to be built. And I say that because I remember very distinctly when I worked in the field, I started working as a surveyor before I got into engineering design in the office. And so I saw catch basins being built and drainage pipes being put into them. And I'll never forget the day I looked at a plan and I saw like an AutoCAD drawing that had a catch basin that had about five pipes going into it. And, you know, whoever drew it figured I can draw five lines into this box on the AutoCAD and it works, but they obviously weren't thinking about the constructability of that catch basin. So I think the message just to send to you on this point from my perspective is remember that it has to be built, whatever you're designing. So if you're the designer, think about construction, think about constructability. If you're the manager, the executive, take John's advice to heart and having some kind of constructability reviewer, 
and maybe as part of your QAQC process, however that works. But this is something that I really wish more civil engineers would be aware of. And as a, if you're a manager, I think you really you owe it to yourself to educate your team about constructability and the importance of constructability because it will cause all of those problems that John just talked about if it's not thought about during the design process. All right. Number one, John, documentation. Tell us about documentation. This is my all-time favorite. And doing proper and extensive documentation is what has saved my bacon time after time when problems arise. And no matter how much documentation has been prepared, when problems arise, most project managers will agree that they wish there had been more documentation and it had been better. So many things that go on during the design and construction process seem so obvious that you don't think that you even need to document them, but that's not the case. And the decisions that are made during construction and during design have to be carefully documented, especially anything that has an effect on the, on the scope schedule or budget. I'd like to remind you about a Chinese proverb. It says, the faintest of ink is more powerful than the strongest memory. And my recommendation is that you print that out and stick it on the wall right over your telephone so that as you start receiving communications from your client over the telephone, that you remember to write it down, feed it back to the client through an email, feed it out to the people that are uh, actually involved in the design that is, that is being affected by the communication, and keep it as a matter of record. Yeah, absolutely. And like John said, this can save your bacon for sure, because there's times where you might have a client that tells you to go ahead and put in that extra layer of concrete or whatever the case may be when you do your design. And then they get out in the field and they're like, why is that extra layer of concrete in the design, right? And if you would have just taken the time to email your client and just say, as per our phone conversation, we'll be installing, we'll be adding the extra layer of concrete to the details. Please confirm that this is correct. I mean, that right there is going to save you because when someone says who made that decision, you're going to be able to pull out the documentation. And it's funny too, because there's so many ways to document things today with the emails, cameras on every phone out there. And it still seems that at times people don't do it. And maybe it's because of what John said and that they think it's obvious. And, you know, so they just take it for granted. But in, in contract situations and projects like this that John said before, there's lives on the line. You can't have too much documentation. Document as much as you can. So those are the top 10 topics on contracts from John's book, which has around 50 topics or so. And we're going to get his information in a minute before we leave. But what we're going to do now is we're going to transition into our CE hot seat segment where we will fire off a series of questions to John that will focus more on personal and professional development in his career. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our CE hot seat segment, which in today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, PPI. Engineers often ask me what exam prep materials or review courses they should use when preparing for the FE or PE exam. Hands down, I recommend PPI. I personally use PPI's materials to pass my exams, and I recently had a chance to demo their civil FE and PE review courses. It's why I feel confident recommending PPI for those of you planning to take the next step in your career. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code CIVIL at ppi2pass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass, 
Com and use promo code CIVIL for a 20% discount. All right, John, so now it's time for the CE Hot Seat here. You ready to go? Ready. First question, are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning ritual or lunch ritual or things that you do consistently on a daily basis that have contributed to you being a successful professional? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I think one of the most important things that I've found about being a successful professional is to be a team player at the same time that you're a leader. You have to participate in the design process at the same time you have to lead it, and you have to develop a rapport with the various members on the design team such that they are uh, happy to come to you and ask for your assistance and help and to take advantage of the experience that you have and that they don't fear that they'll be criticized for asking a question that perhaps they think they should have known anyway. All right, John, next one. What is one book that you recommend to engineers regularly or just one book that you found to be extremely helpful in your professional and or personal development? I think The uh, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People by Stephen Covey was probably the most meaningful one because it, it does outline the, the good work habits that are necessary to be successful. Absolutely. And I don't believe that you're the first or second person on the podcast to even say that book. So that's, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So one final question, John, and we call this the civil engineering career elevator advice question, meaning that if you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and you had about 30 or 40 seconds with him or her and had to give him or her career advice in that short period of time, what would it be? I would say that sharpening your written communication skills is probably one of the most undervalued and overlooked skills that are critically needed by civil engineers. And the way to do that, in my experience, has been find somebody in your organization that when you've read their correspondence, say, boy, that was really good. Go to them and say, will you be my mentor in the area of written communication? Ask them to review and objectively critique how your sentence structure goes, how your use of words goes into it, and how your grammar is and that kind of thing, so that you can overcome any weaknesses that you may have that in that area. I don't know that this is so much a career-promoting activity, but it certainly is a career-inhibiting activity if you cannot put things down in writing in a clear and concise method that others can understand. Absolutely agree with you 100%. I think civil engineers that can write have an ability to, uh, well, it just helps you in a lot of different ways. When an engineer thinks that they don't need to write to be an effective engineer, I think they have some problems in their career. So that's a great piece of advice. All right. So John, thank you for joining us today. Before we wrap up here, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you, your book, give us your web address or however they can connect with you. All right. My web address is lowconsultingllc.com. And my book can be, is available in both the ebook and the printed format on amazon.com. And it's also available in the printed format from the AIA and ACEC bookstores. So it's out there and available, and I would certainly encourage all of you to get the book and put it to a good use. Great, John. And again, the name of the book is A Guide to Managing Engineering and Architectural Design Services Contracts, What Every Project Manager Needs to Know. 
Please remember, you'll be able to find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 40. You'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. You can also leave a question in the comments section or visit the Ask Us tab on the website. We monitor all the comments and we'll respond if you leave us one. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success. Hello, this is Anthony Fasano again. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And again, this is just a short note to let you know that since we did record the episode, we teamed up with John Lowe and we have published the audiobook version of his book, A Guide to Managing Engineering and Architectural Design Services Contracts. In the episode, you heard his top 10 items, but there are up to 50 items in the book. And you can listen to the entire audiobook in two hours or less, which will, I think will really give you an advantage in your career as a civil engineer. So to check out the book, go to contractsbook.com. Again, that's contractsbook.com. Enjoy.